What is it you want, Barry? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dying times here. Come with me if you want to live. That's it, man. Game over, man. Game over. The Force will be with you. Always. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to 20th Century Geek. I'm your regular host, Scott Weatherly, and today we're going off to an island, a desert island, and we're going to be doing some desert island comics. And I've got a great friend on, I've got Dave on from, well, multiple podcasts, I should say. Uh, you may remember him, he did, we did our Star Wars adventure recently. Dave, how are you doing? Not too bad. Cheers, Scott, for, uh, for having me on. I can't wait to uh, discuss a bit of desert island comics with you. Yeah, that's quite nice. It's something I've been wanting to try and do uh, for a while now. Just a little topic I thought I could throw in, sort of, you know, maybe not so long podcast, not short and sharp, and just have a look at comics that people enjoy uh, and sort of, sort of, you know, especially if it goes back to that area that I really like, that sort of the, the 20th century. Um, but we will jump right in because you've picked some some uh, three uh, crackers, I should say. I've, I've enjoyed sort of getting into these a bit this week. What were the choices? What were your choices for this week? Well, I guess the first thing uh, is, you know, it is such a difficult thing. <laughs> I'm sure, yes. you know, when you when you actually yeah. boil it down, you think, oh, yeah, there's loads of comics that I've read over the years that I absolutely love. And then someone asks you to narrow it down to three, and it's like, and, and single issues as well, so not kind of trades mm. or story arcs or whatever. And it's like, oh, God, that is a hard, hard task. <laughs> so it did have me questioning, and I guess... I've ended up going back and, and looking a little bit nostalgically at some of the things that I've read kind of earlier on in my youth. And then one of them is something that, that is from that kind of 80s era, but I've, uh, I only read it years later. But I have to say, you know, it, it did get me thinking back to, you know, and exercising bits of my brain that I haven't been exercised in a long time. And I was thinking back to, okay, where was my first exposure to comics? What actually got me into them in the first place? And I think that when I was very young, so, you know, you're probably, I don't know, younger than eight, say, I seem to remember um, getting like a few Hulk comics or and uh, also Spider-Man comics bought for me. And then just looking at the pictures and not really having a clue what's going on, but, you know, you, you hmm. kind of went through them and, and identified with the characters. But I couldn't really pull anything out of that era. I think there is one Hulk issue. Uh, I seem to remember it had the, uh, the absorbing man on the front of it and he was giving the Hulk a bit of an ass whooping. Um, I can't remember which which issue of the Hulk that was, but that one sticks out in my mind's eye. And also, uh, Rocket Raccoon's first appearance in the Hulk uh, also ha- seem to remember having that issue. But after that initial stage, and you know when when you think kids should be into comics, and and of course I've read the Beano, the Dandy, all those kind of comic strip things that you used to get in in the UK, it was actually what I think. Of it, in my mind as giant size x-men number one and for mm. years i thought that's what it was it was giant size x-men number mm. one whereas actually what it was was classic x-men number one which was a reprint <laughs> so i'm kind of cheating a little bit i'm saying giant size x-men yeah. number one 
but it was 1986 when they released that first issue, which which was the reprint. And I remember going up to the newsagents. I remember looking around and remember when newsagents actually had comics, you know, before the days of comic shops yeah. and everything. Yeah. And I looked down and I just see this uh, this cover that I found out much many years later that was by Art Adams. You've got Wolverine on the front. You've got Cyclops there. You've got big hulking Colossus all these characters just bursting out of the cover and you know i never had much money to to buy lots of comics so it only had to be one and that was the one that mm. i selected it's a it is a do it's one of those ones i think you know it's it's, it's like a milestone especially in the x-men and, and marvel it's uh you know like you say giant size x-men number one it's just one of those issues that you sort of that gets referred to a lot, doesn't it? It's a, it's a definite milestone issue for for Marvel. Yeah, and just by pure chance, and and you know, through my adult life, I've ended up. I kind of always go back to Marvel. I like to dip my toe into a bit of DC, and I like you know when someone gives me a good recommendation for a good indie run. You know, like everyone's read mm. Saga, haven't they? And you know, Chew and things yeah. like that. So, but. I always go back to Marvel and I think it's just that chance encounter to wander into the newsagents because I, when I was trying to collect comics, I mean, back in those days, Marvel UK was quite a, a thing. Mm. And um, I quite often, you know, like I say, I probably bought like one comic a week uh, maximum, but I'd quite often buy stuff like Transformers. Uh, they actually had a, a Spider-Man and Zoids. Remember Zoids? Yes, yeah. <laughs> so Grant Morrison thought, wrote for that. I know, I know, it's crazy. Yeah. I, I do want to yeah. go back and try and find <laughs> some of those issues, but uh, I don't think you can get them digital anywhere, so I'm going to have to search eBay and, and try and find them. But yeah, so I quite often buy those things, but just this particular uh, cover just sold me on it, and it just happened to be one of the, like you say, a milestone uh, issue in the whole of of comics really hmm. it is it's one of those things isn't it especially like you say if if you come across something in your formative years um it, it sticks with you like you say you go back to marvel because that's that sort of you know that was the comics that sort of uh when you were a kid it sort of took you to that those characters you know you referenced like the hulk when you were so you know little just looking not have to read mm-hmm. it but like looking through the pictures it sort of sticks with you and sets you on a, on a a path for really, it doesn't like you say you'll go off and read other things but there always seems to be a, a, a character or a sort of you know a magazine or something that, that you just keep coming back to it's, it's um yeah it's now those early years can be affected in that way yeah and, and like i say it was completely by luck and obviously you, you do a bit more research when you get older and, and it was interesting how you know len ween came up with this idea you, you know you had the the first x-men team which was like four white guys and uh, all good good american boys and one girl mm. and she's a bit uh, she's very much written like a 60s woman isn't she she's not too strong or, or what have you and Len Wein wrote this this uh, giant size X-Men number one, but for me it was when, you know, it was when Chris Claremont took over the reins, you know, and mm. he was chomping at the bit, I believe, to to take the reins on this one. And for me, that just catapulted X-Men in you know into the stratosphere. And then, you know, so when by the time the early nineties came, you know, it's 
it just blew my mind, you know, having gone through this yeah. uh, journey from 1986 and then actually seeing them on the screen with that Fox Kids uh, cartoon, mm. it was just like, oh, this is so good. <laughs> you know, it felt like good times. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's the, the, the really interesting thing. You, you're so right. That, that you know, everyone talks about the, the original X-Men and says, oh, they were, um, you know, a metaphor for... Um, the sort of you know whether it be minorities or whatever or the sort of you know the race issues and sort of thing and you sort of go I, I sort of see what you're saying but they're all very white and very not you know <laughs> too weird you know and then you get this issue um which really re-baselines I mean th- this is where modern X-Men's come from isn't it this is this sort of re-baselines it and you do you get like you know Nightcrawler and Colossus and uh, Storm and Banshee and all these characters, and you're just like, oh yeah, this is this is the X Men that I know and love. Like this is where they came from, um, and they feel like outsiders now. Like they've really sort of gone for it, which I think is fascinating. It's a real sort of uh, a p- boundary pushing kind of step, is it? Like you know, it feels quite brave, really, when you think about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they literally started off with that idea. I can't remember the chap's name. It, it wasn't Len Wein, but it, it was more of a. Uh, sort of higher management exec type person it wasn't Stan Lee um, but someone came up with the idea let's just have an international team because X-Men although it had been created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby it, it wasn't great to be honest and mm-hmm. and that whole thing about it being a metaphor and Magneto's Malcolm X and um, uh, Professor X's Martin Luther King that, that all kind of uh, came after you know, in the first issues, I mean, that very first issue of X-Men, Magneto is just your classic mustache twirling, uh, yeah. stereotypical villain. There's no layers to him at all. And so it only comes a little bit later. In those early X-Men issues, they're kind of celebrated just like any other superheroes are. You know, they go and smash up a building to, you know, apprehend <laughs> yeah. the bad guys. And it's like, yay, the X-Men. And it's only kind of... It evolved a bit after that, but they ended up having to cancel it. And then obviously it's way before the days of digital and, and being able to download copies and what have you. So, you know, they'd reprint, they'd carry on the numbering, but they mm. they uh, they were all just old reprints. And so, you know, they came up with this idea, let's just have a fully international team, you know. And, and to be honest, to have like a, a Russian in there, you know, for yeah. for a start at the height of the Cold War kind of thing, it was quite a brave move. But no, you're right. I mean, this is this is your real X Men for me. Yeah, no, I totally agree. It's it's interesting. Like you say, it's brave, and and we'll we'll get into the sort of like the writing and because obviously the originally this came out in like seventy five, I think. Yep. Yep. <clears throat> um, and you you can tell that there's still a little bit of that. Um, old school thinking around some of the characters. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, I mean, they, they, I really, I actually, I really enjoyed this issue and I, I sort of like whipped through it quite quickly and went back and was reading bits and pieces of it. But there were times when I was a bit like, you know, when you get like Peter uh, Colossus, um, how'd you say his name? Peter? Just because it was like uh, yeah. Peter. Uh, uh, I just say, say Peter, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he's just so, it's just so, I don't know, like he's supposed to be naive or what, but he's just like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm going to leave and go join these people. And it's like, you know, you, you, you've been raising a farm. This is really, it shouldn't be this simple to just get people to join the X-Men. It seems really bizarre. But um, I think as well, he doesn't he say um, that, that his power, you know, because he's got this power, 
you know, it sh- shouldn't that be owned by the state? Yeah. You know, a, a little nod there to, to communism, obviously. But I tell you what, it, it does remind me of as well. It's uh, Superman 3. You think, do you remember the bit that I mean when you have the little boy? I think so. Yes. The, the little boy yeah. in Smallville and you get the old uh, Combine Harvester. And it's, the combine in the field, yeah. Lana Langton, isn't it? Yeah. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. it, it's just straight out of here, isn't it? Yeah, it t- totally. Um, and yeah, because I mean, you know, this is it. I mean, it opens with Nightcrawler, and I like the way they play this because I mean, to get, to, do, to give the plot, because I assume this was a continuation. I mean, the plot's really simple. It's, it's simply like the X Men have disappeared on some island, and Professor X is basically collecting a bunch of new mutants to go and save them. Um, but like, it's it, it sort of it's not messing around. Like this issue does not, you know, it. it lays on new ideas relatively but it doesn't mess around like you start with nightcrawler and he's straight away sort of like you're just learning about who he is you know mm-hmm. it's sort of like oh yeah well i look like a the elf or i look like a monster but they are the true monsters and then you sort of you know obviously again like he evolves to become um more thoughtful and yeah. you know i wouldn't say passive but like, or, you know not really a pacifist but in this, he's like, no, so I'm going to throw myself literally into the battle and just start kicking ass. Um, <laughs> and that, that's within pages. It's, uh, it's yeah, I was just like, I was quite surprised at sort of a 70s comic that's uh, that, that's this this sort of uh, gung-ho and quite sort of fast-paced. Yeah, I think it, it definitely is. And it isn't really a, a continuation. Like I say, they, they'd cancelled um, the X-Men because it wasn't selling very well. And I think also mm. Stan Lee had, has been quoted since as just saying, look, it, it's it's easier if you're writing about Spider-Man just to carry on writing about Spider-Man. You've got that one character and, and you know his supporting cast. But if you've got all of these different superheroes interacting, they've all got their different personalities, it's just harder work. You know, to to think what's everyone's motivations and everything. So, all these things led to to the book being cancelled. And like you say, this is a great kind of standalone story. It feels like you're jumping in halfway through, but you can mm. literally pick it up on page one. And and it was it was fun for me because I I went back obviously uh, and just flicked through it. And and again, it just brings back so many memories. You know. Again, back in the eighties, you you weren't collecting comics or anything. There was no keeping them pristine. <laughs> you just read yeah. them to death, yeah. you know. And uh, they jammed so much back then into one comic book. It was so dense, and it, you know, when Claremont comes along, it gets even more dense. With a say, lot more yeah. words. <laughs> yeah, but um, that's a different era. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 I totally love that because I was amazed at sort of, you know, I, I bought this on Comixology and it's about like, what it says on here, it says it's like 30, 37 pages. And um, yeah, you know, that's a, quite a long comic. I mean, it's, you know, it's a giant size issue, but they, they pack an entire, like an entire story in this. If, they, if this was going to be, in fact, I'll tell you what, if this was an, a, a story today, and especially if Brian Bendis was to write this, this is like seven or eight issues. Yeah, easily. Yeah. <laughs> And and that's what, you know, again, coming back to as as we are going to our desert island, you kind of need a dense story that you can keep going back to. And, you know, you, yeah. you look at the artworks, fantastic. And there's, again, there's a lot of meaning to every single panel. There is no panel that's wasted. Whereas in your more modern comics, I like them because you can breeze through them quite quickly. 
you know, mm. and and the the artwork and the printing process and everything is is so much better, obviously now. But for that, you know, compressed type of storytelling, I, I just think it's fantastic. It really is. I mean, like you say about the artwork, and it's um, uh, what who was it? Let me have a quick check. It was Dave Cockrum. Yep, and it's it's superb. I mean, it like you say, every panel is is you know is has something to say like there is nothing wasted and like I say it's not one of those books where you get okay well this actually this page I've got six panels and actually it's a character and it's a, a colored background like no no there is something going on like all over the place um and the the one that stands out for me really is uh is is him going to see storm um and you know I'd forgotten that this was sort of like you know the original comic book origin obviously again like all these characters have evolved Mm-hmm. To have her as a, as a as a topless weather witch in sort of in Africa and stuff, yeah. Um, but you know, and using her hair to cover her sort of modesty. Um, <laughs> but all the bits with the rain and the wind whipping around and everything else, like it's a really good looking book. Like the art in this is fantastic. It is, and and like I say, I think I think I can't help but look at the art adams cover on the classic x-men number one and compare Mm. it to the giant size and i I think to be honest for my preference i I think art adams just edges it but no it 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 all looks great and i think if you look back at like say um uh hulk 181 when when wolverine first popped up he he looked a bit different didn't he so he didn't actually Mm. debut in this giant size um they just used him as a character here but for me just looks a bit better if you go back you know his his sort of helmet type thing his horns type thing are are a bit smaller in hulk and and he just starts to look like a a good character here but i mean some of the motivation doesn't stand up that yeah. well you know they've they've invested huge amounts of money you know the canadian government into this uh <laughs> into this <Yeah>. weapon x <laughs> and he's just like no i'm off you know <laughs> yeah i love i love that scene when because they, they actually say that don't he's like we, we've yeah. invested loads in you he's like tough and leaves yeah. and I'm, I'm just like that's a, it, it's the same with um the sort of like the native american uh character um, thunderbirds yeah Thunderbird, uh, you know, he, he weirdly, like, you know, he, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if he's well written or not. I don't think he is because it's the dialogue in this bit becomes a little bit too Tonto-ish uh, at times. Do you know what I mean? It's that sort of like yeah, yeah. referring to his pale face and white and white eyes and other stuff. I'm like, oh, it, just, it doesn't, it doesn't rest. Um, you know, it doesn't sit well. But however, his frustrations and his you know, his uh, bitterness comes from a real place. You know, this thing of his his uh, race having been forced onto reservations and being to, you know, basically wasting away is, is was a legit concern in the seventies and stuff. So, yeah, again, yeah, they're bringing yeah. the, they're bringing those real fears out and real issues out. It's just sometimes I think they they get they're obviously getting put through a, fi- a filter to make it more palatable or a bit more sort of like like you say, um, comic booky. Yeah, I think what I, again, one of the things, and I'm sure all the companies do it to a one degree or another, but especially when I go back to like the 60s, you know, Marvel came out around the 63, wasn't it, when they started trading as Marvel, mm. they just seem to have pushed that 
kind of social boundary a, a little bit further. You know, they, they tackled hard issues that not necessarily head on. And, you know, they, they'd kind of try to walk that middle line a bit. They wouldn't just say, this is absolutely wrong. You know, they wouldn't take a stance like that. But it would kind of hint at little issues like this, like you say. And I guess I I don't, I never thought that Thunderbird was, I'm going to have to go back now. You've got me thinking. <laughs> I never really thought about his kind of stilted dialogue. But for me, it just felt like he wasn't in it enough. I just thought he looked great and, in the issues after this, I'm afraid, you know, spoilers, but he doesn't last too long. Um, yeah. Because I, th- I think they thought that, you know, he was a bit too close to Wolverine, you know, in personality and everything. And, you know, he's the muscle of the group. Uh, but, you know, years later, his, his brother pops up, uh, Warpath. Mm. Yeah, and that's it. This, this book is loaded with those sorts of characters. And some of them are, are, are like I say, are really good. It's interesting to see. Um because again, like you say, it's the designs. They look great. I mean, the other thing I like about this, which is a very seventies thing, I think it's sort of six well, is chapters. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure why, but I really enjoy that in in uh, in comics. So you get like you know, chapter one is the sort of like the band being brought together, then and then like chapter two, which probably would have been like issue three or four by you know modern standards. Yeah, they're all to, they're all, they're all together in their outfits and and sort of. Um, ready to go and i love the fact that i mean because these are all the designs and, and you know i'd say you know look at the picture most of these designs have pretty much survived i think like storm has been adapted to be less um risque i think in sort of modern times <laughs> but but like nightcrawler hasn't changed at all really has he um you know no, colossus no. colossus has barely changed even like wolverine like the outfit they give wolverine here survives like well into the early 2000s. I mean, I know you get the brown uh, outfit later, but, like, you know, you said the X-Men, that Fox Kids X-Men cartoon, that is this Wolverine and, and this Colossus and this Nightcrawler. So, you yeah. know, it sets, the, it sets the template, really. Um, although uh, I would say, if, if I was Colossus and I was given that outfit, I mean, granted he's ripped, <laughs> you know, he's, but even I'd be like, uh, it's, a bit, it's a bit drafty, this one. This is several years before Operation U-Tree, wasn't it? I mean, let's face it, right, with the metal, you know, when he turns into metal, I think the outfit looks pretty cool, but it's because of his metal skin. When he's not got the metal skin, it looks ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) But the other one that that, I'd almost forgot, and I still go back and I, I have no idea why he's in it, but Sunfire. They just they just bring in this Japanese character who's a bit of a dick. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And he's just like he doesn't want to be there, but he flies all the way to the US to just tell him that, you know, he doesn't want to be there. And it, it's, I, I I'm not quite sure whether it was just to, you know, maybe they really were trying to cover all the bases, you know, and make sure they had a, a Japanese superhero in there. But I mean he, he he just seemed a bit unnecessary to the story to me. Well, I, I was convinced, I mean, reading through it, and again, it's one of those where you sort of, I think you, you provide like a modern sensibility, but I was like, him going off and then coming back, I was like, oh, he, he's going to have to be integral to the to the resolution of this story. Like, you know, exactly. We're going to have to have this moment where, thank goodness he came back, and then, yeah, he doesn't do anything. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you're a bit like, oh, all right, well, yeah, like he could have stayed at home and there would have been no problems whatsoever. Um I mean, there's a couple of the, the, the thing I would say is, you know, like, okay, I enjoy all of this, um, but there's a couple of things in the in the end that 
that feel a little bit, I must say pointless, but from a story point of view, it's almost like, okay, we're going to fill some pages, like, okay, they keep them dense. But when they get to the island to save the old X-Men, uh, they find out that there's a huge, like a giant mutant there um, that seems to have developed from the island. And at one point, Professor X takes it on in like a mental battle. And then that, and that does nothing. Like, yeah. it, 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 it literally <laughs> lasts about half a page and then never pays off in any way, shape or form, really. It's like, oh, all right. Well, that was a, that was an intense two panels. Yeah. I mean, again, though, they, like you say, that would probably be a whole issue now. So so I guess yeah. what, what they're trying to tell us is that, you know, I mean, Professor X is supposed to be one of the most powerful mutants, but he's just got no chance against this this uh, island mm. of Krakoa. So, you know, I, I guess it, it does seem a little bit like a blind alley. And, and, and I guess, you know, I was, I was going back and I was thinking, you know what, as a kid, I had no idea what these last few pages were about. You know, they somehow, they end up jettisoning the, uh, the island, you know, uh, they use the magnetic, yeah, yeah. the magnetic pull and whatever to, to kind of catapult them into space. And that's how they do it. So, and I believe, again, Chris Claremont, when he was in the office, actually helped out with, you know, figure out how they would beat this island. But yeah, I, th- I think that probably does go on a little bit too long, That just that end fight scene. Yeah, and I, I like the fact that it, it it has that typical moment of, um, you know, we've tried to take this on ourselves, you know, individually. Now we can work as a team, and so you get like Cyclops and Havoc and sort of Storm and Banshee that working together to, uh, you know, to 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 take it on the the island. I think it's, it's quite good. It's, it's a good fun, but like I say, it does go on a little bit. Um, yeah. Question I've got actually, because obviously you know, having read this. Um, I was curious to sort of like, I've got an image in my um, take on Iceman has obviously come from much later issues and stuff, but he comes across as a bit of a dick in this. <laughs> and I'm not sure, if, I just don't know if I was like, am I, am I, you know, maybe putting something into this, but he just comes across like, like you say, just sort of cocky and, and uh, a bit nubbish. And I was just like, oh, that doesn't seem like the, the Iceman I'm used to. So it, it was just interesting to see that these are older versions of the characters, really. Yeah, I mean, Bobby, he was like the youngest of the group in those early X-Men issues. And, you Mm. know, he'll always be the youngest one in the group, if you know what I mean, for that original team. Obviously, he's uh, he's one of the first, or not, probably not one of the first, but in continuity, he's he's gay now, isn't he? Mm. So, uh, but I I remember Iceman for, actually, my first exposure was probably Spider-Man and his amazing friends. You know, when you had yeah. uh, Iceman and you had Firestar. <laughs> yeah, they cover all the elements. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, no, I think, yeah, I think Bobby is a little bit cocky. But again, yeah. I, I forgive him because I love him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, interestingly, I mean, uh, again, I, I can kind of, on my desert island, I can think about other stories. I mean, this story was retconned years later. So I don't know if you're aware, but Ed Brubaker took this story and sort of wrote an arc called Deadly Genesis, where he basically Mm. said that this is the second team that Professor X put together to go and rescue the original X-Men. So he actually formed another team, but they sort of got decimated. And there was another Summers brother, a guy called Vulcan terrible character to be honest but i thought it was quite interesting and in the last i would say 
10 years, I think Professor X has been handled very differently. You know, he, he was this kind of headmaster type figure, and then he became a bit more lovable, a bit more cuddly. Uh, you know, Patrick Stewart kind of fatherly um mm. professor x but no they were kind of in more recent comics they've been sort of questioning how uh virtuous a lot of his morals were yeah i've seen that but it's, it's an interesting arc they've taken him on because he's no longer and well they seem to have done it with quite a lot with the x-men i think there's so many of them they do these things but yeah this, this idea that actually you know he isn't like you say that the the, the virtuous and the, the good guy that he's actually been portrayed for for years like he's actually quite selfish and and actually quite dangerous and i think it's an interesting take um you know to go on because i mean they've, they've obviously done the same with <clears throat> scott summers cyclops seems to be switched from hero to villain a couple of times at least once that i'm aware of so it's uh yeah and and magneto quite often finds himself on the on the other side which kind of mm. leads us to another one of my choices <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. That's just, uh, what a segue! <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't um, actually planned that way. I was going to talk about this one third, but actually, that that <laughs> that, that was seamless. That wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was. It was absolutely. Um, you know. Um, so we're, we're going to stick with Marvel, and um, we're going to jump forward a couple of years, really, to this. But so, what's your second choice then? So again, this comes back to this same news agents at the top of our road. I'm pretty sure it was a John Menzies. And uh, again, on a different occasion, wandering up there and just seeing what's, uh, what they had there. And I, I think I mentioned before, when I actually was trying to keep track of a story, they never bloody got the, the right issues in it. So it was always a bit random what issues you'd actually find there. But stumbled across... Marvel Superheroes Secret Wars number one. Mm. This was an interesting issue. I mean, again, like you talk about the cover, you know, this is an this is an all out cover, isn't it, for this number one? Yeah. And uh, you know, you... sorry, go on. It's it's no, it's very similar in that sense of like you know, it's it's presenting as many heroes and some of the same heroes, but it's presenting as many heroes as possible. Um, in a sort of like, th this is a sort of a comic where you go, oh my god, this this is going to be awesome. Um, <laughs> it's a, it's a really good cover. It is a great great cover. I do think um, so. Giant Size X Men number one absolutely stands up. You know the writing from Len Wein, uh, it, mm. it is all compressed, but I think it stands up quite well. Again, you can't think too deeply about some of the motivations. Um, Whereas Secret Wars, I mean, this one was written by uh, Jim Shooter and it was blatantly just created to sell toys, as, you know, a lot of comics and, and uh, cartoons and stuff were at the time. I think the cover is fantastic, but I do have to say this one, I, I can't imagine this will be in many people's Desert Island choices. Mm. It is just purely for the nostalgia for me. But when I'm going back and I'm reading through it, it's like, oh my god, some of this writing's pretty terrible. To be fair, <laughs> yeah. I was just say it's 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 funny how we sort of said about that, you know, uh, joint size X Men number one is is it's, you know, you, we said about every panel is sort of really important and the, and the story is really dense and they've tried to do a lot with these things. Yeah, this one is a very different story. <laughs> um, it's it's it is good fun. I mean, this is another one where they're like they are not messing around. There's no sort of preamble. It literally starts with the the 
you know selection of marvel heroes um you know in space on some sort of space station and it's just like and we're off and that's it it, it sort of goes from there so it, yeah it doesn't it doesn't mess around at all yeah and i think you know so it was mattel that, that came out with the line um again mm. when i'm reading it as an adult it's the dialogue. So the concept is fine. You know, again, the fact that the motivation is to sell toys. It was the first real event comic that I can remember, mm-hmm. you know, and so I, I, I think this this was um, uh, this was a bit earlier. So this was 84-ish, 85-ish time, wasn't it, when, when the whole yeah. run came out? But I'm specifically thinking of this first issue. And... I think at the time as a, as a kid, you know, I'm reading it and it, it's, it's okay. It's at my level, you know, <laughs> when I'm reading it now, it's like, you know, here are all the heroes. Let's do a quick roll call. I'm Iceman, you know, I'm Spider-Man, I'm Wolverine, you know, <laughs> it all kind I, I of flows admit, like that. <laughs> that bit really weirded me out. Cause there is, this is sort of like, well, every, Wasp at one point says, well, everybody should know who we are. We're the X-Men. And you're a bit like, well, Sorry, we're the Avengers. Like, yeah, yeah, but you don't have to. Surely you know each other. Like you've all crossed <laughs> over in the past. Like, it's it, that bit is very. Um, yeah, there's a panel for the panel. Yeah, it, it's it's a bit bizarre when they do do that because it's like, well, you're all sort of from New York, so you you do know each other. But but yeah. again, it's it's kind of it is bizarre, but it's. I, I don't want to say it's kind of brilliant because I'm sure there's there's more subtle ways. But obviously, you know, was it Stan Lee who used to say, you know, everyone's comic could be someone's first comic. Mm. And so this was, there is no comic that has embraced that more than this one. Because if you can know pretty much nothing, I mean, you'd have to, you'd find it pretty difficult. I mean, this is back in the 80s, so you wouldn't necessarily know who the X-Men were, not even Captain America or Iron Man, but you're going to know who the Hulk is. You're going to know who Spider-Man is. So you you don't necessarily need to know them. But, I mean, we had the uh, a different iteration of Captain Marvel there. You know, and I think to to go through that roll call was all just purely for us, wasn't it? Purely for the readers to tell us, right, here are all the different characters. And again, comics at these times, they read over and over again. So, you know, I'm I'm pretty sure the fact that I've read this over and over again has just helped me fall in love with these different characters. Yeah, because I say it's definitely the 80s lineup, isn't it? I mean, if you were to do... I mean, it's got the you, you know, from a hero point of view, it's got your main ones like your your, you know, a list. I mean, if you you could give this to a kid now, and it would it would be an entry point for them. Like they could pick this up. Like, okay, I know who Captain America and Thor and Iron Man and Hawkeye is, and you know, yeah, I know the Hulk and Spider Man and the X Men. I know all those. So, I mean, this is sort of like your main lineup, isn't it? Really. So yeah, it, it's it's an easy entry point, really. And it works. You're right. You could. I would. In fact, like, there's one of the things I did think about. If I was going to give this to a kid, I think it would be a really good first comic. Really, uh, absolutely. I, I think it is. And and actually, you know what? We, my son's uh, uh, nine. I might just try it with him. <laughs> mm. And and again, I think for me, because I'd had a little bit earlier, I'd had um, a lot of the the kind of Hulk comics, and you know, you have your your wrecking crew in there. 
I mean, they, yeah. they've pretty much disappeared from recent continuity. <laughs> and, and But their costumes are so colourful. And again, Absorbing Man was was always one of my favourite villains. You know, I, I always gravitated towards the heroes. But, you know, Absorbing Man, you just think, well, you can absorb any kind of material. And how the hell do you beat someone like that? And so I always thought he was a good match for the Hulk. And I, I just like the way they all matched up. You know, you've got Doctor Doom there for the for the Fantastic Four. You've got the Entran- Enchantress for Thor and mm. you know, Claw, the Lizard, Molecule Man, Ultron, you know, takes a bit of a pound in early on. <laughs> but um, I love that. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, the, the villains in this are great. And I have to admit, it's um, I, I'm a bit of a fan of Doom. Um, yeah, yeah. Especially when he's at his full, like when he's at full tilt arrogance, Doom is brilliant. And I mean, it must be so much fun to write. The fact he always refers to himself in the third person is, <laughs> is so much fun. Um, and it's, yeah, it's so funny because, like, just as, you know, there's, there's moments in this where he sort of, <clears throat> he tries to sort of like tally on with Galactus. And, but I like the fact that he is humbled by Galactus to an extent. But he's still like, well, Doom can do anything he desires, and then goes off and does it. You're like, all right, yeah, you actually are quite good fun. To, you're really good fun because um, one of the good things this this does is this first issue sort of like not only does it sort of set the stage for you know you've got what you what's going to happen for the next eleven issues that follow, it sort of sets up power levels pretty quick as well. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, in, like you say, they, they keep going on about how badass uh, Ultron is, and oh my god, he's going to destroy all of us. And then so Ultron attacks Galactus, and Galactus literally just sort of goes like, clicks his fingers, and sort of absorbs all of uh, Ultron's energy, and he's yeah. done. Yeah. And, and so you're like, actually, no, Galactus is like truly immense. Um, yeah. No, I, I was, I, I was like, this is a really good setup for, you know. Um, for if I'd have come across this like yourself when I was a kid, I'd have been well up for the rest of the, the, the rest of the issues. Absolutely, and it, it just makes me just makes me a bit sad, really. That I mean, I agree with you. Doctor Doom is such a great character, such a great villain, mm-hmm. and they've just failed time and again to bring him to the screen properly. And I mean, the you know the last time was the worst of all. They say, they don't seem yeah. to be able to learn from their mistakes. They just make a whole load of new ones. So I, I am hopeful that now, kind of Marvel own that character again. That eventually we are going to build up to something. I don't need to see him in a Fantastic Four number one, or, or you know, not the the eventual Doctor Doom. Mm. Um, you know, so so maybe build up to that in a second or a third one or something but he is a great great character he's one of those characters that sort of like they like say because he, he he's so much fun in this and i really enjoy him and um there's a couple of characters that stand out in this but um yeah it's, it, whenever they've taken him to the sort of uh other medium like especially in films like they just seem really scared of, of or concerned about playing him that way because let's be honest like he is a bit Mustache twirling, you know, <laughs> old school villain, isn't he? Is and, that, and that's why he's so great. But like, if you put him on screen that way, I think they're like, oh no, he won't come across right, or he won't be as cool as he needs to be. And I'm like, no, no, no. Like, you just need to do it, and like, you know, Doom, Doom will do well. I wouldn't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, I think though. I mean, he he does. I, I think. 
I think there's a bit more depth to him. I mean, he is super smart, you know, and mm. quite often, um, you know, he'll, he'll, I guess in a bit, a bit like Thanos, where, you know, you could actually not necessarily agree with where Thanos was coming from in the, in the MCU, but you could explain why he thinks that way, you know, mm. and he thinks he's on the side of righteousness kind of thing. I, th- I think Doom can be a little bit like that at times. You know, he is absolutely arrogant. You know, everyone is beneath him. But I, I think in his mind, you know, some of his actions are are virtuous in themselves. So I, let's see. I, I just, I am hopeful. But I mean, it, again, you mentioned with uh, Giant Size about some kind of uh, slightly dead end <laughs> kind of uh, uh, plot points. But the fact that Doom figures out, okay, so we we should get everyone together. You know, I'll I'll fly over to the uh, to the heroes and try and get get us all working together against this Beyonder. And uh, but I think he ends up getting shot down, and then he's like, right, screw you guys, screw the lot of you. Yeah, <laughs> it just goes nowhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, well, what what was the point in that? I'm, I'm genuinely not sure. Yeah. It- it does feel like they've gone. Oh, this is co- this. This would look good, and it, to be fair, it does. I mean, you know, there's some bits in this that look cool, and they say they don't really go anywhere. Um, there's some other interesting bits. I mean, I, I read a couple of issues ahead, um, and I, you know, I read well, I read the next issue, and it, I like the way this starts to pan out, and because I like the fact that again, like um, as you sort of said when we were talking about the X Men, is Magneto appears with the heroes, yeah. Um, and so, you know, when when that happens, a lot of the heroes sort of are like, well, you know, we've got this bad guy with us. We've got this villain, so we've got to do something about that. And the X-Men actually stand up to him and say, no, no, no. Like, basically, he's one, almost like he's one of us. Yeah. But, like, but legitimately, like, you know, look, we, we've got no time for this. Let's, you know, let, let, like, sort of let's work together. But I like that he tries to explain himself. He's like, well, I've never murdered anybody Unless it's been in, like, I feel, I feel he, he feels like he's justified. Like I've never d- d- killed an innocent. It's always been in defence of, of you know, Homo Superior sort of thing. And again, it's an interesting thing. Oh, that's an interesting. That could become something interesting within this arc and stuff. I doubt it does, but it's a uh, well. It, it, they, um, they with it. It depends how far far ahead. I, I think did did you get up? I think him and Wasp have a bit of a thing. I mean, I, I haven't gone back and read the whole run for a while, but mm. pretty sure him and Wasp have a a bit of a thing. But definitely, you know, this was the first time that I'd I'd ever considered a villain to be a bit grey. And again, I have to say, you know, my two top villains are probably Magneto and Joker. Mm. Um, and I, I have to. The joke is just awesome, but I think the reason it's probably Magneto does probably come back to this first issue, where mm. it was the first time when I'd, I'd understood, you know, how oh, villains can have a, you know, they can think they're the hero of their own story. And, uh, you know, if you look at, I guess, more modern motivations and stuff, you know, when you, I say more modern, you know, when you've had, characters like the the Punisher and whatever around since the 80s but you know not everyone is whiter than white and I think the fact that you've had uh, Scott Summers walk in the Magneto line and quite often you know uh, in the X-Men comics Magneto will flip-flop you know he'll be with the Brotherhood and and Mm. the X-Men will be fighting him that the next minute he's with the X-Men you know (laughs) and so he he does flip-flop 
and I think I, I just like that grayness to his character. And again, if you if you think about his kind of World War Two origins, the, the way they'd kind of rewrote all of that, you know, to build that up as part of his backstory, you know, you you start to understand it. It all makes sense with this, you know, this minority being persecuted, and yeah, it, of course, it, you would think a lot of people would want to fight back on that. Yeah, 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 and I, you, I think you. You know, nail on the head. I think that's it. <clears throat> Magneto is one of those characters that has got so much depth and can be played in so many ways that, uh, um, you know, he, he can. He's a, just a really interesting character, not just a villain, but just as a character. And I think that's mm-hmm. you know, and I I didn't realize until recently. Someone um, I I sort of always assumed that his Jewish heritage and the whole Holocaust thing was was a part and parcel of his character. Um, but no, apparently it was Chris Claremont that sort of introduced that early on in his run. So. That's not something that's been around for you know all that long, really. And it's, but I think it's one of the best additions to a character. It really adds something, um, you know, another level really to that, which I think so. Yeah, I mean, like I say, I mean, uh, you got to love Stanley, you know, and and in terms of one person who's influenced the whole comics industry, there can't be many that uh, that um, can stand next to him. But in terms of the X-Men, I mean, if you ever go back and read those stories, they're not great. <laughs> you know, mm. Stan was great at the Razmataz. He was great at the showmanship and all of that. But for me, I would advise anyone to go back to those Chris Claremont uh, issues and just see the interactions between all the teams. And I tell you what, there are very few people that can stand up to Chris Claremont and and say that they write good, strong female characters like he he can. I mean, the way he's he's developed Storm, you know, Rogue, the way he kind of took Carol Danvers, you know, into that Mm. X-Men world for a while, he really developed females on a par with the with the male characters. No, I agree with that definitely. I mean, I've read quite a bit of the the Chris Claremont running. It's, it is fun. It's just stand up. It is really good. Like you said, it gets wordy, but um, you know, it, it feels like one of those. It feels like one of those runs that sort of like everything starts to pay off, and it, you know, you you benefit from sticking with it. It feels like you know you definitely get more from it the more you read. Hundred um, so, yeah, percent. I definitely agree with that. Yeah, and, and I think, is it the McDonald's adverts that say, you know, like getting your money's worth? <laughs> well, if yes, you want to yeah. if you want to buy a Chris Claremont X-Men issue, you get your money's worth out of it because it's going to take you ages to get through it. <laughs> yeah. I remember, like you say, you know, when, you, when you're sort of, uh, you're coming up through the comics thing, you know, and you're first starting out and you, there's, you start, especially with the internet age, you start to learn about those key issues or those key runs or those sort of, you know, the story arcs that you've got to read and they stand out. And everyone sort of talks about the Dark Phoenix side. And you're like, oh, I've got to read that. It's one of the key X-Men ones. Oof, that's a read. That is, <laughs> that's, that's a real read, that is. It's brilliant. It's it, it's really good. But yeah, that's um, that's a read and a half. <laughs> it is. That, that keeps you going for a long time. And and again, you, you know, these days you just download them all from Comixology or, mm. you know, because I doubt you, you know, you'll need to get dig deep into your pockets if you want to collect all of those. So, you know, most people I think will download those and it will take you a while to go through. But when it was coming out month to month, can you imagine that, you know, oh, reading along and yeah. thinking, 
where the hell is this going? You know, because yeah. the, the way it starts out with kind of breaking Jean down and her psyche with Mastermind and everything, and and the way that whole story evolves, and and of course, what what I actually love about the Dark Phoenix saga is that it wasn't a hundred percent Chris Claremont. It was mm. the fact that you had that editorial editorial interference, if you like, but it created something that was better. And, mm. and again, comics is such a collaborative medium anyway, isn't it? I, I just like that as a great example where if the writer was left um, to his own devices, I'm afraid, you know, Gene and Scott would have rid- ridden off happily into the sunset. And it was the editor mm. who turned around and said, look, you can't just commit mass genocide and then be, and still be a hero. Yeah. <laughs> and, so. and that's it. And, and those things, and that's why it stands up. As, and that's why it's been made into two films. Like, you know, they keep trying to, you know, again, one of those things they never seem to get right, but it's, it, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a fantastic story. It's a shame. It's never really been done properly, but it's worth going. I would definitely recommend going back and, and, you know, cause the X-Men are littered with great, great books and terrible books you know they're, they're they really do sort of i think there's some writers that just miss the beat and there's others that just nail it and they can just <clears throat> i mean dark Phoenix saga but there's to completely go off but you also get like uh was it um uh, god loves man kills oh yeah yeah um which was one of those that again sort of you know someone's like, oh yeah you should read this and that just blows you away like that's that's yeah. just out and out like you know not just a good comic that's just a good story so um yeah, yeah, these can be some really, really good stuff. And again, that that really just stands up, doesn't it? And and I think the shame, I, I mean, because of these early runs, the the X Men, obviously they they appear in both of my choices. They they less so in the Secret Wars. Unfortunately, what's happened sort of post nineties, you know, I mean, the X Men just exploded, didn't they? Mm. And and instead of having you know, initially you had the main X-Men run and then 82, I think you had the new mutants coming out, but that was still all kind of architected by Chris Claremont. So he, he kept these things very uh, tight, you know, and he'd have these kind of dangling plot threads that, you know, he'd pick up a couple of years later. So, you know, if you were a fan reading through at the time, which I wasn't, you know, but I, I kind of go back and read them retrospectively. But if you were, I just think that would have been amazing to think, hang about, I, you know, that, that traces back to something that happened ages ago, you know. So mm. I think that would be great. I think, unfortunately, what's happened because of their success, you've now got 20 X-Men books or something. And, yeah. you know, Wolverine, and I know he's died recently and he's, he's coming back, Um but you've got Cyclops in eight different books a month. So all of the writers don't really have control to be able to, you know, do anything with him. They have to keep them all so bland and they, they kind of make them all caricatures of themselves, you know, like beast in particular has been treated horribly. Mm. And, and so there's no depth to the characters because they're used in all these different books. So it's usually, it's only when uh, you have these kind of spin-off books, you know, that, that still tackle this mutant world that you really get some good content. I think, I think like, um, so uh, one of the chaps I spoke to on, on Comics in Motion last year, David Hine, did District X. And mm. so that was all set in Mutant Town and there wasn't really, you know, there were none of the main characters really in there. And that is a great, great book. But basically because he could do what he wanted. 
Uh, the amount of times you hear that is it when you sort of the, the, you know your A listers or your top flight characters get protected unless they're going to sort of orchestrate some you know like say massive change or massive death. Yeah. They try and keep that even keel. So stories are you know are usually fine, but like you say, you you want something that feels a bit risky and a bit like you know um, things are like probably going to happen and people are under threat. And you say you do get that. And sometimes that's why I enjoy like lesser characters because you think like yeah, I've no idea where this is going to go because the company doesn't really care. So it's one of the reasons I love Moon Knight <laughs> so much because the company doesn't really care about him. So when they do come, it's like I wonder what's going to happen now because it could be anything. <clears throat> but you're right about those big stories, like you say. And Wolverine at one point, I remember like early two thousands, sort of, you know, he was in everything, like every X Men book, he was in the Avengers, he had his yeah. solo title, like he was everywhere. To the extent where you're just like, I'm bored of him now. I'm really sick of seeing him. Yeah, I mean unfortunately again, one of the things that's happened again with this with the success of it and the characters just becoming caricatures of themselves, Wolverine is just he's almost at Superman level power set you know whereas in the in the claremont run it still took him time to heal he couldn't have his Mm. arm blown off and then grow it back in three seconds you know he'd kind of he'd be injured and then he it would take him time to recover and then at some point again i I blame most things on the 90s to be honest when it comes to comics (laughs) so i think it's sometime around there he just became way too powerful yeah i always remember as um, when they did um, Civil War, and there were people mm-hmm. that had, you know, characters had their sort of like their own little Civil War run that was sort of like, yeah, yeah, you know, how they tied into it. And the Wolverine one is actually quite a lot of fun. It's sort of like he ends up wanting to take revenge. He he wants to take revenge on um, the 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 person who eventually who accidentally killed all the, the kids and stuff. Um, that instigates the sort of the civil war, so it's him sort of tracking him down and stuff, and it's mm-hmm. it's really good. It's a good story. However, there is a part in that story where he gets blown up, and obviously it doesn't destroy his skeleton because it's made of adamantium or coated, but it blows off like all his flesh and all his organs. So you just see <laughs> this sort of like adamantium skeleton lying on the floor. But the 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 monologue is that like, but molecules of his essence or his remained on the skeleton. And it's like 72 hours later. And it's just this sort of like 73 days to grow an entire body back. Yeah. I'm just like, this is, I was like, like you said, I'm like, mm, it's, it's a good book, but mm, I'm sort it, of struggling with this. It's pretty bad, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> no, I think, and, and Deadpool's pretty much of, a, of an equal power set as well. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's not great. I will say, one of the honourable mentions, one that didn't make the top three, was uh, Old Man Logan. Mm. So by Mark Millar, and a, you know because that's an alternate future storyline, you don't really know what's going on there, and the twist in that story, oh, I, I remember yeah. that was that just blew my mind. And and properly to you know if you watch like Sixth Sense or something like that, or you know, recently went back to watch From Dust Till Dawn and, and I think back to, you know, how it blew my mind initially and it occupies your mind space for the next few weeks. Old Man Logan was like that. I, I just yeah. couldn't believe it. And I thought, why has no one done this before? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's one of those sort of, it's one of those ideas. It's so simple. It's like you say, that twist that, you know, when, when the villains sort of attack, I'm not, I'm not going to spoil that because people yeah. miss it, you know, but the, the, the simple idea of you know of taking somebody else's villain and using them in that way is yeah. 
it it's brilliant and um it's tragic and i i love his response to that as well um you know it's yeah it is it's a very very good that's a very good book that is that's a yeah book. yeah but I mean, get, getting back to getting back to Secret Wars again. I think mm. I just like the fact that you know you, it's such a simple story. You, you know, you've got this kind of contrived beyonder who just wants to get a bunch of goodies and a bunch of baddies on two different parts of the world, and they, you know, the winners will prevail. But again, you you know, you go back and lots of lots of interesting things happened in this run. I mean, this is where Spider-Man first got his black costume. Mm. So kind of obviously it wasn't Venom at the time, but kind of is Venom's first appearance. Um but also, you know, again to bring it back to the X-Men, I'm afraid. So uh Colossus and Kitty Pride were actually dating at the time. Now I'm sure Kitty was supposed to be about fifteen or something, whereas Colossus was about twenty-two or something. Yeah, <laughs> so... it's all a bit. It's all a bit iffy at this point. I, yeah, it is all a little bit Jimmy Savile. So you know, yeah. again, bit of editorial input, <laughs> a bit of a nudge, yeah. and you know, Colossus kind of ends up having a, a bit of a thing with with an alien. <laughs> from another world there and it's like oh yeah, yeah sorry kitty but we've split up you know the final thing in that the way they've handled kitty pride over the years has always been a bit interesting because you know she's meant to have been that sort of young uh character that sort of you know that's sort of almost a point of view character in many ways yeah but they've always they've, they've always sort of they can't in comics they can't help but for one of the better phrase sex them up a little bit yeah, and yeah. you're always a bit, you're always a bit like, no, no, stop it! <laughs> don't have to, <laughs> don't have to do that. We get what you're trying to do. I think, um, unfortunately, what what's happened to Kitty, because you had Jubilee appearing in the the X Men animated series, and and I don't know if you listen to like, you know, when you have these big creators from Marvel and stuff on, on the official Marvel podcast and whatever, mm. it's amazing how many of them say the first thing that got them into comics was that X-Men animated series. But because, I mean, Jubilee hadn't been around for that long. I don't know why she got, you know, such a headline part, especially in that in that first, uh, first couple of uh, episodes. Mm. But basically, she was the role that Kitty Pride played, you know, she was that point of view character, you know, Wolverine kind of took her under his wing kind of thing. And then suddenly Jubilee's there occupying that space. So that leaves or, or has left Kitty Pride a, a little bit out in the cold. So, I mean, she, she is one of my favorite characters, but again, she's, she's not really been handled that well. I don't think over the years. No, she's one of those characters that it's, it's clear they never really knew what to do with her. But I mean, I'm, I'm a, a big fan of, from an X Men point, of view, I'm a big fan of Excalibur. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And um, it, I, I mean, I more came across that because I love Captain Britain, you know, um, <laughs> going, going back to sort of, uh, I mean, going back to like the 70s run, when like I say when it was Marvel UK, <laughs> UK yeah. through to sort of the Alan Moore run and, and, and uh, Alan Davis. But I, I, for some reason, I just really, it's so, I mean, Excalibur's not good. I'll be honest with you. It's not. It's not. I couldn't laud it as a great series, but it's 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 fun. It's really good fun. And Kitty Pride is actually like she takes a lead in that, and she becomes mm. quite a sort of uh, a, a strong character. And so I really, I just love her from that. That's what that was sort of my exposure to her. Um, so you know, I I think and, and just digressing a bit. I mean, do you think we'll ever see a Captain Britain in the MCU? 
No, no, it's too niche. I mean, it's, it's that thing, isn't it? Of sort of like you know, you've got a Captain America, and they'll always be the excuse of like, well, they'll, be, they'll get confused or whatever. But I would, I would love to see it as a Disney Plus series. Yeah, I, I would love to see it done in the Alan Moore way, where he's actually just a bit of a lunkhead. Like you know, he's a he's a bit of a tit, really. But he, <laughs> he's doing good, and he wants to do good. But he's he's not. He's a bit of a pillock. I I, pref, I, I prefer him in that mode. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think wasn't there um oh there, there was a hint of him wasn't there in one of the uh, I think it was Endgame. You know where Cap is sort of staring through the blinds at Peggy. Yes, they they they've hinted at different things because you do see sort of Brian Braddock, um, the, the name Braddock on yep. things. Um, but also, of course, you know, if you if you have UK characters uh, in the first Captain America, you have um, Union Jack. Union Jack. So you've got yeah, you got uh, what's it, Farnsworth there, who yep, obviously yep. is the first Union Jack. So you know, the, the, <clears throat> there's always that hint, and it's always like oh, you can you, you just you're always going to hint this, and you're never going to give it to us. So I, I would absolutely love to see some kind again honorable mention some you know the comics that i was thinking about kind of including but the invaders comics where you had cap you had union jack you had the the human torch you had namor the submariner again brilliant brilliant comics those yeah there's some i used to look that they're really i've gone back and i've got quite a few of those those are really good um, and they're like I say, just simple, really good, fun adventures. And that's where Marvel, for me, that's where Marvel thrived. Is that sort of like, you know? And that's why I think why the way it works in the MCU. That's slightly more lighthearted, but just really, really good adventure stories that you can sort of get your teeth into. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I think we're ready to swing the other way now. So we've talked about lighthearted adventures and and sort of <laughs> you know that sort of thing. And, and so. Let's let's talk about your third and final choice for for Desert Island Comics. What what have you chosen? Well, as you say, this is this is the other end of the pendulum, isn't it? Now, again, being at the age that we are, you know, sort of growing up in the eighties, I, I think you had reruns of the Batman sixty six series and the movie all the time, and so it's this mm. very campy uh but iconic you know image of batman and also robin and and then the likes of joker the uh the riddler now my third pick comes from 1988 it is written by alan moore and it's batman the killing joke yeah now this is a, a seminal book um for a number of reasons some good some some not so good um but yeah, so tell us, tell us why you chose this book. Well, I think this was um, again when I was a bit older. Um, I, I didn't really sort of have that much uh, kind of input, not input, but you know, I didn't have that. There was no internet, you know, in the in the kind of early nineties to kind of look at. There were no comic book shops, so it's not even as if you could go into a comic. Well, there probably were, but not not in Saint Helens where I was. And so, you know, I ended up coming across this one and it just absolutely blew my mind that Batman and Joker could be portrayed in this way. Because again, mm-hmm. if, if you go back, I mean, I've gone back since, but you go back to those early kind of Batman uh, issues and, and the Joker's not that far different. You know, that is, he is a psychotic, you know, crazy um mofo mm. but when you had the whole comics code and everything they just watered him down and so you know again i, I think you end up 
the Batman 66 wasn't that that far removed from you know what was happening in the comics and so when you when you get that kind of opening when he shoots Barbara Gordon you know through the mm-hmm. spine and and you just think wow what the hell is this it absolutely blew my mind and the fact that you know you you have this um you have an origin story for the joker in there as well i I felt like that was quite interesting but then later in the book he kind of says well i like to think of that he's you know one way one minute then i think of it remember it a different way you know i like to think of uh these things as being multiple choice so he's he's given us this origin, but then he's kind of given us the get out as well, and saying, you know, well, well, it might be this way, and it could be another. So I just think for the for the tone of it, you know, it felt like, you know, for for early in my, you know, early uh, or teenage life, that I was reading a grown up superhero story. So at that, at that time when I kind of felt like I was growing out of comics. It was like, wow, this is this is a different world for me. Yeah, uh, and this comes out of that sort of the the eighties push, wasn't it? That sort of um, comics could be more grown up, and obviously you've had uh, previous to this, you had sort of Frank Miller's um, Dark Knight Returns, and um, you know the sort of the start of, of Vertigo with sort of Alan Moore and uh, doing a Saga of the Swamp Thing and all those kinds of things. It's obviously it came together, and you get. Yeah, uh, the Killing Joke, and as you say, it, it's a different, it's a, it's a different book. I mean, it, it's um, in that sense of like you say, Batman in it is is portrayed in a certain way. I mean, they haven't gone the full, you know, he's not gone the full Frank Miller and got him as a sort of, a, you know, a, a violent aggressor. But you are led to question Batman in this, like you know, there, there's yeah. moments in this when you're like, oh yeah, this this the whole thing is crazy, like not just the Joker. Like this book says to you, like no, no, these two, both of these people are are nuts. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and and there's no two ways about that. Um, and I, I love that. And again, I love the fact that I love this notion of um, one one bad day. Yeah, you know, and I love his monologue when he's like, "You, you must have," like we said when he's monologuing to Batman, like you had one bad day. What was it? What broke you? You know, was it a boyfriend? Was it a girlfriend? Was it this? Was it that? What happened? What made you don your cape, sort of thing? Um, and I love the fact that, like, you know, he is he is paralleling himself and saying, like, you know, we both had this situation. We just went different ways about dealing with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, you you chose to don a mask, and I went crazy, sort of thing. And I, I just, I I love it. I just think it's such a. Um, a fascinating take on the Joker in particular, this idea of sort of like, you know, um, when, when I saw Joker uh, last year, the sort of, um, you know, and I, I enjoyed it. It's a, it's a good film. It's got, it's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's um, well, I won't get into the whole Oscars thing, whether it deserved Oscar, but the performances <laughs> it were fantastic. But it, the, 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 the one issue I did have with that film was, was that, was the Arthur Fleck felt sort of dark and, he starts like you know he's got his, he's got his own mental uh, health issues and all sort of things, mm-hmm. but, but he feels sort of like for want of a better phrase dark and broken at the beginning and just gets more dark and broken. And I get the theme that they were telling, but like you say, the pro the, the thing I love about this is that it's more about just a schlub. Like this is just a guy who's really down on his luck, and it's just like a series of events that just get worse and worse that really push him over the edge. 
um and you know that, that really break him it's like it is like the that backstory that he gives if it's real is like the world was just against him on that day you know yeah. it's, it, it's terrible um and so i just i don't know there's just something about that i just really enjoy that i think you know it's it's twisted but it's yeah it's so good it absolutely is and and i think i mean i mean just picking up on your point on on the joker movie I really enjoyed it. I thought Joaquin Phoenix's performance, I, mm. for me personally, as soon as I saw it, I, I did think that was Oscar worthy. Everything else just kind of orbited around him. You know, was it a great storyline or, or whatever? I'm not sure, but his performance I thought was great. I guess the only problem I have with overlaying that performance on the Joker that I know is do I really think he could take down Batman? You know, and and stand toe, or not necessarily physically toe to toe with him, but you know, really go up against him. And I think, you know, there's been a lot of talk. So, so who's the best Joker now? Is it Joaquin Phoenix? Is it uh, Heath Ledger? You know, for me, it's still Heath Ledger. Yeah, yeah. Is that because you know the Heath Ledger Joker feels more less because although he sort of talks about chaos and all sort of thing, like it's calculated and. You know, it's, it's it's calculated chaos, and that's what this feels like. That's sort of like what the Killing Joke is to me. I mean, you know, this idea of taking Gotham's top cop in Commissioner Gordon and trying to prove his point that, like, no, if I really, really make things horrible for you, I can bring you to my level. I can make you understand, and you will be just the same as me. So, you know, it's it's. Um, it, 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 yeah, it's just a it's just fantastic. <laughs> I mean, the one the one issue I would have is, you know, has it aged well? Um, there's what we refer to as the fridging effect. You know, the use of Barbara Gordon in this, um, you know, it, it's questionable. So, um, so what 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 do you mean the fridging effect? So there's the the, the notion of you know you know what fridging is. Um, I'll explain it. So the, the, there was a is it Carl Rayner? There was it this um, the Green mm-hmm. Lantern. Yeah, yeah. Chopped and shoved in the fridge, and it just drives it. So it always has to be the woman, uh, an issue happening to a woman that drives revenge for you know in a mm, male world. Okay. <clears throat> so you get the attack on Barbara Gordon, and the shooting is one thing, fine because she literally opens the door, and I've never had a problem with that because like that could have been anybody, you know. I don't think the Joker really cares. Um, but it's the it's the later on when Gordon's sort of at the amusement park and he's going around the amusement park and he's shown all the pictures of of we are we you know you are it's yeah I would say it's titillating but you are showing glimpses of a clearly naked Barbara Gordon in some sort of distress yeah. and then when when she's in the hospital she says to Batman like she's clearly like in shock and she's like no no it's it's not okay he's you know he's he's taking it to the limit this time you didn't see him and you're like. It sort of alluded to the fact that like something terrible happened to her, and again, you can read into it what you want. Like you know, it could have just been photos, and they just mm-hmm. humiliated her. But again, it's the fact they chose to do it to Barbara Gordon for her father. It's sort of like you know, it's that thing of like, well, even, I think even Alan Moore's admitted that you know, it's uh, it's probably not in the best taste these days. Right. I, it, it's interesting. I've never thought of it that way. I mean, Alan Moore's admitted that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not After recently, shooting I mean, down Frank Miller constantly over his misogynistic writing, yeah. so um, I I don't know. I mean, look, 
as a guy with two daughters myself, I can't think of of many things worse to happen than that. And mm. it, and it is left suitably vague, isn't it? It's not coming mm. out and saying this is what happened. It's all just suggestions. So it it's making your brain work, and you're left to fill in the blanks, and, and you can let them blanks be whatever you, wherever your mind takes you. So I think. Um, I think I'm kind of okay with it. The other reason that I'm kind of okay with it is, you know, if you read a comic and basically at the end of it, the status quo is still the same. Mm. Again, Stan Lee said, you know, the fans have to feel that illusion of change, you know, so nothing actually changes, but it just yeah. feels like change. Whereas this, you know, the shooting and, and paralyzing Barbara Gordon, who was Batgirl, had real consequences, you know, and, and you're sort of thinking at, at the end of the story, you know, how bad it is. But then, of course, she, she goes on to become the Oracle. So, you know, it's it's not all terrible, but, but it did have real consequences to it. But you, Yeah, but you, I mean, you know that was a retrospective decision because um, this was supposed to be a non-continuity sort of elseworld yeah, kind yeah, of book. Yeah, yeah. And um, when it happened and then they were sort of like, oh, actually, this is a really good like place to be at. Um and so then, yeah, they introduced as Oracle, which is great because you do get the whole sort of, you know, her as Oracle is actually really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it is interesting how, like, you know, Alan Moore never really intended this to be in continuity, which is why, I th- again, like we said about the other things, like it felt like it could be dangerous because it wasn't supposed to have an impact on the wider world. It, it just did. It, they took yeah. it because it was so good. Um, two questions. There are two key sort of things in the book. Um, that you know they all sort of they all sort of come to is as we sort of said is, is sort of like you know um, Joker's history. So I know it's a multiple choice, but th- so this this history, this sort of story of him being you know being a schlub that be- sort of tricked into becoming the Red Hood. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on it? On it, really? I mean, I again, it's I'm not sure if I believe it or not. Um, like you said, I mean, the world was definitely against him, wasn't it? It just seemed mm. like he was down on his luck. I think like a lot of these Batman stories, they feel like they're best placed in that time in the thirties, you know, in and around yeah. that great depression time, you sort of think, well, if that was today, would that really kind of happen? No, but if I think I'm in the thirties, you know, in and around that great depression time, then, then it could happen. Um, but no, I, th- I thought it was believable. I think the, the image, you know, when you turn the page and, you know, when he when he's finally turning into the Joker and he's, he's sort of gripping his, he's got his fingers through his hair mm. and you've got all the ha-ha-has around it and everything, I, I just find absolutely chilling. But, um, I mean, what, what do you think about it? It's an interesting one because I actually, I, I like it as a story. It's how I sort of, um, I, it's one of my favourite origins of the Joker because it's that thing I've always said, you know, Arthur Fleck becoming the Joker sort of feels almost like inevitable. But the idea of... Um, have you ever seen It's a Wonderful Life? You know what? I haven't. <laughs> it's one of my shames. I, I think there's a few. <laughs> I, I managed to write a wrong. I, I hadn't seen The Godfather uh, up until earlier this year, so I, I've written that wrong. But I, I do have to watch It's a Wonderful Life. Well, I'm not going to spoil it, because I think you should do that on, on VHS Strikes Back at some point. Um <clears throat> but there's a character in that played by uh, James Stewart called George Bailey, and he's sort of like you know he's like this quintessentially sort of good guy, and he sort of leads his life, 
and that's how I sort of feel. Like that's the character that sh- that, w- that this becomes the Joker, and so the tr- it makes the Joker just more tragic for me. Like it doesn't make him any more less any less dangerous or any less lethal or crazy, but it makes him more tragic. You know, mm-hmm. this idea that yeah, the world just gave him an absolute beating, and you know, f- from his point of view now, just all he wants to do is just tear it down. In, you know, and he finds it hilarious now that this is the case. So, and like that final moment as you say the thing where he sort of comes out the water having been doused in the chemicals mm. and you get that moment of sort of and again the one thing we haven't mentioned that we we, we really got to is the brian bolland art oh, um, so good is yeah because you know it shows it as a sort of you know he re- he removes the hood which he's been trapped in and then you sort of see it in a puddle because obviously puddles play a really big part in this and reflections um which is because the whole thing's about you know, reflecting and, and dark reflections of each other. Um, and then there's sort of the slow turnaround to then just the cackling, as you said, that probably one of the most iconic images of the Joker is just, it's just so good. And it's so satisfying in a sort of tragic way. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, again, I, you, I don't take it as the definitive um, end or the definitive, mm-hmm. sorry, the definitive story, but yeah, to me, it's one of my favorites. It's easily one of my favorite sort of notions of the Joker. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. Uh, you mentioned about the artwork. Boland's artwork is just phenomenal. And, and again, mm. when I think of the Joker, I think of this kind of, uh, th- this way he's drawn. But it, it's interesting that the original colouring was done by a chap called John Higgins, uh, who mm. did Watchmen as well. And I've got to admit, I prefer, it was it was redone. So Brian Boland himself redid it for a deluxe edition. And it's it just fits a lot more. It fits a lot better, I think, for me. Yeah, there's a surrealist feel to the sort of the original colouring that's sort of quite blocky and quite sort of you know it feels quite eighties in that sort of sense. Yeah, it's quite, um, but it's not great. And I do, I do love the recoloured version. It, it sort of um, it grounds it again because it's a very grounded story, and to have it in that sort of like you know the the real sort of. Uh, I want to say gritty, but those real tones is really, yeah, really makes it sort of uh, hit home. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's strange, isn't it? Just some sometimes the worlds align and, and it all comes mm. together. I mean, uh, I can't fault Watchmen the mm. way John Higgins has, has coloured that. It's just, like you say, it's just a little bit off for the, the original Killing Joke. And, and I just love the Deluxe, Deluxe yeah. edition there. I agree. No, I, that, that's definitely my preferred version. Last question about this then, because it's that sort of like, you know, uh, controversy that sort of, not even controversy, it's probably a strong word, but the, the notion that came out a few years ago was in the final pages, um, there's a moment shared between Batman and the Joker, and they, they share a laugh. And it's that thing of sort of like, you know, just of all the, the madness that's going on, you know, just that, that moment of silliness. But it was, I think it was maybe even Grant Morrison that kicked off this idea on, on, Fatman, uh, on Batman. Does you know as they're laughing and everything? Does Batman kill the Joker on that final page? Yes. What are your thoughts? Hundred <laughs> percent. That's how you've always taken it. Not always, but as soon as I read that theory, I went back, <laughs> went straight to my bookshelf, looked at it, and I'm like, "How have I not seen that before?" I mean, uh, again, I, I, I probably I say a hundred percent. There's few things in life that are absolutes, but. Um, hmm. I, I, I'm very, I, I strongly believe that that's the intent. 
Um, otherwise, I don't think you can really explain it. Other than, what, sorry, go on. Yeah. What, what do you mean explain it? Because the, the panel work, you mean? Or... The, the panel work, just the way, you know, they're laughing uncontrollably, you know, because Joker tells him, I, I can't quite remember what the joke is, but, you know, both Joker and, and Batman start laughing. And, and all the way through the story, as you said, you, you, you're exploring this idea that, you know, Batman and Joker are just two sides of the same coin. You know, it's mm. not this, uh, again, that was one of the other things that struck me about it, you know, because I'd, I'd grown up on Batman 66, where Batman is clearly the goodie and Joker is mm. clearly the baddie, you know, and then you start to explore this type of story and you're like, hang about, it's, it's a bit more murky than that. So yeah, they're, they're kind of laughing uncontrollably. You can see all the ha-ha-has all over the panels and everything, and then it, it just stops absolutely dead. And so I, I just... For me, yeah, he's killed him. But like you say, because it was it was intended to be this Elseworld story. Mm. Yeah, and that's it. So, so Alan Moore's never commented on that. And uh, uh, Brian Bolland actually <clears throat> came out and said that it was never their sort of definitive intent, but it was it was left ambiguous for that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, I like the fact that I mean, the, the final part of the book, there's a, the, the the last three pages are, are, are just some of the best comics. I, I just think the best comics. I mean, there's a moment like you know, Batman's spent a while literally beating the crap out of the Joker, and then he says to him like, obviously, like, he doesn't have to be like Batman saying to Joker, it doesn't have to be this way. Like you know, yeah. I, could, we could, I could help you. There are things we could do, and um, you know, the Joker's face is just like, no, sorry, it's it's too late. It's all gone. To, it's, it's gone too far. Like you know, this is a, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's this is it now. This is the roller coaster that we're on, sort of thing. And then he tells the joke, doesn't he? he says um, about the it's the two escapees from the asylum and. Uh, <clears throat> he's, oh, he, it's he's the flashlight. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He says, "I don't trust you because you'll turn it off halfway through." Uh, you know, when I'm halfway across, and um, it's a, it's a genuinely sort of quite a funny joke. But you know that that moment to me. Is I don't think he kills him. I did for a while, and and then to me, I was like, oh, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. And I was like, I can't believe, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to go into this whole thing of like Batman doesn't kill because that's that's regardless, and so especially if it's Elseworlds. But I just think for that moment, it is. It's 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 just these two for me, these two broken people, um, you know, acknowledging the sort of like the ludicrous situation that they are in. Like I think the 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 reason Batman is laughing is I think he's able to step aside and say. Do you know what we we have here? We have a man dressed in a Batman costume, and we have a guy dressed as a clown fighting each other in an amusement <laughs> park, and it's and it is ludicrous. Like this makes no sense, and I just feel that like that's that it's that moment of of, of laughter that I, to me just feels like that. And I think that the, the panel breakdown, that the last panel of the book is the same as the first panel of the book. Like they are literally identical, and so to me, the book represents a cycle. Like, you know, this is the book to me is always going to be they will the, the acknowledgement of they are on this this cycle again and again and again. Like, they will this will keep happening to the extent of like that first, last panel is the same as the next part. You know, that last panel is the same as the first panel. And this ongoing thing will go on and on and on. So, there is no one bad day, they're just going to keep going. Um, and so, you know, I felt it represented more to me was this idea of a cycle rather than a definitive end, but uh. Yeah, no, that's what I like about this book as well, is because people have these different these different ideas about it. 
Yeah, and and that's interesting. That I hadn't noticed that that it's it's the last, it's the first panel as well. But I, I've just brought it up. I'm I'm just looking at it now, and again, you've got the, you know, you've got the police sirens coming from the distance, mm. so you can see that kind of e, you know, with with the sirens, and then you've got the ha ha ha's, and it's just the way it goes to the rain on the floor, and you see the kind of red, yeah, on the floor. I'm I'm not sure if it's not blood, what that's supposed to be, and 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 you're absolutely right. I think it's, you know, Batman doesn't kill or he's not supposed to kill, but again, I don't think I, I think because um, because Alan Moore thinks he's off piste, he can kind of do whatever he wants. Yeah, and and you sort of think, okay, if it wasn't this uh, this silly universe where you've got Batman in it, you know, and the Joker, yeah. if this was real life, what would he do? You know, is is he well, going to make that? Do? Yeah, is he in that choice? If mm. he if he can break out of that cycle, you know, I'm not saying it's right. I'm not advocating go off and and do this sort of thing. But <laughs> if he can break that cycle, a lot of people would do it. And so again, I think for me that's that explains those last few panels but um mm. I, I i completely agree with you i love the fact that it's ambiguous but i just thought you know i i'd like to get off on the fence on these things I, i'm analytical yeah. most of the most of my day job so <laughs> you know it's nice to be a bit bolshy and <laughs> say no, no, no it's, it's absolutely good. this way <laughs> but to me to me that's why this book is so good because there are times I'll read it and I'll say, you know, I'll come out and go, no, he does kill him. And there's others where I'm like, no, 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 it's this and this. And and again, it's one of those books you can read, and it's, um, you know, it's just, it's a oh, fun's the wrong word, but it's a it's a it's a satisfying Batman and Joker story. And then others, you can sit and analyze the panels and see what's sort of meant by where the panel structure is and what you know Brian Bond has put in the artwork and what's in the dialogue, and you can really like analyze it and stuff. So. It's yeah to me. It's one of the most satisfying. I re- I return to it quite a lot. It's one of the most satisfying comics I think for me. So great choice. Absolutely, I I go back to it a lot as well. And and actually, uh, I mean, Alan Moore doesn't doesn't do the whole Comic Con circuit anymore, really, does he? But uh, I did manage to catch him. He, he was at uh, the Nice Comic Con, so Northampton Comic Con mm. when it, when it was actually in Northampton and not Bedford. And uh, I think it was the first one, and and to get in to see him do a talk was that was that was that when was it the, the cricket club and you had to give the the graphic novel? That's right, yeah, yeah. Were you I there? Was, I was there. Wow. I did, but, I, <laughs> but I couldn't I couldn't stay for the Alan Moore talk. I had oh. to get back for something. I was so gutted. Yeah. Oh no! I'm sure there's, there's probably someone must have snapped it on their phone or mm. something. There's probably videos up on YouTube or whatever. But it was really interesting for me because he brought up Killing Joke, as I'm sure you know. If you if you manage to catch him in the streets, I mean, he's it, actually you're not too far from him. I'm I'm sort of the other yeah. side of of Northampton, aren't I? But he's not too far from me. But he was saying he regrets kind of writing that book because. You know, Batman as a character, it, it it should be a fun character, and so mm-hmm. to do such a dark take, but then not only that, for that dark take to really drive the direction of of Batman, and and probably mm-hmm. you know it's had a massive influence on the wider comics, hasn't it? You know, it's quite a lot of comics now that that take that much darker uh, route than before, so. I, he actually said he regretted it, but I think most of us in the audience were like, 
nah, still great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Saying that though, it's interesting that you say because there is this sort of idea with certain writers of like, oh, yeah, I want to write the killing joke for the Green Lantern. I want to write, you know, I want to write the killing joke for the Flash or whatever. Mm-hmm. This no, this idea of having that definitive story for that character, and um, you know, it sort of it, it has it's inspired a lot of people to try and go down that dark path. Um, and, and try and do that sort of like you know that story for that character, and some just don't deserve it. Like you know, I don't think Superman ever needs to have like that dark and gritty uh, telling of you know of, of a sort of that sort of story. It's just not that character. I, absolutely not. And I think you know, I, I know Zack Snyder has a lot of fans, and and I think you know, I, I think his yeah. his movies are interesting. They just don't get Superman. I mean, someone like mm-hmm. Batman, you want that grittiness. You want to explore that side of that character. For Superman, I, I'm sorry, but I'm I'm into the Christopher Reeve Superman. Yeah. He, he'll always be Superman for me. He's he's still got to be that Boy Scout, and trying to make him all mean and moody and have washed out colours and stuff. It, it just doesn't work for me at all, I'm afraid. <laughs> no. I mean, it's one of those, isn't it? Sort of like, you know, again, to go to another one of my favourite writers, it's uh, the definitive, almost almost definitive Superman story for me is uh, All-Star Superman um, by Grant yep. Morrison. Yeah. Yep. And Frank Quietly's art is, is outstanding. So, um yeah, I think you know that that um that duo. I actually recently read We Three. Have you have you oh, watched that? That book is 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 wonderful and heartbreaking. It's such a good book. That is three issues, just yeah. such a slim book. But it's so so good and told. Like, I think you sort of mentioned it in, in, the, in the podcast, like with that, almost without dialogue. Yeah, um, but yeah. Oh, did yeah, I, I? I can't remember if I'd spoken about it at all. But it, it's one of those I'd I'd never even heard of it. But you know, obviously, it's this quite famous duo. It's Morrison and Quietly, and and you know, you're looking through, and so much of the storytelling is done through the artwork. You know, clearly, mm. you know, Morrison would have architected the story, but in terms of dialogue, it's really light. Um, mm. But like you say, just such a, a touching story, and and three issues, you, you can blast through it, you know, fairly quickly. But yeah, I, I, an amazing creative team. Yeah, yeah, those. I mean, like I say I really like those two when Morrison did his X Men run and, um, yeah, they've done some of the good bits. Yeah, but, uh, not, yeah. not a massive fan of his new X Men, to be honest. But oh, really? <laughs> yeah, no. He's again. I know. I, I think he's when he did the X Men. I think he's quite polarizing. I think for some people he was like a breath of fresh air, but I don't know. I just. I think for me, I'll I'll always be a bit of a stick in the mud and and be a bit of a Claremont fanboy. I think. <laughs> That's it. Go, go for the classics, and they were classics for a reason. Yeah, yeah. Well, Dave, it's been fantastic talking to you, and really, you know, really appreciate you sort of coming under your uh, your top three, your Desert Island comics. Um, it's uh, I've I've really enjoyed reading them, going back and reading some of these, and it's been great talking about them. So, thank you very much. No, it's brilliant. And thanks so much for having me on. And it has been a blast. And, you know, although these are the ones that I'll take to the Desert Island, haven't read uh, certainly a couple of them in a few years. So to go back to them to refresh myself and uh, bathe myself in a bit of nostalgia and, and, and indulge in some great conversation with you, it's been fantastic. Yeah, thank you very much. And well, as we go out there, so where can people find you and uh, and your podcasts? 
So if you want to listen to a bit of comics, we do a podcast, myself and my co-host Chris, we do Comics in Motion, so you could find wherever you get your podcasts from. If you want to head across to Twitter, we're on Comics in Motion P. You can also get us, if you want to indulge in a bit of retro uh, classic home video movies from that VHS era, you can get us on The VHS Strikes Back, again, wherever you get your podcasts from. And on Twitter, it's VHS Strikes Back. And I think for the comics we've got coming up, uh, doing a Birds of Prey, sorry, Harley Quinn, Birds Mm. of Prey, as it's recently been renamed. (laughs) (laughs) And I think for the VHS we've got coming up, um, another Sly Stallone classic, Over the Top. Oh, oh my God. (laughs) Which, Which Chris assures me he loves. And honestly, I'll share with you, spoilers, it's shit. Yeah, <laughs> I can't wait to see how Chris can defend that one. I was impressed with his no retreat, no surrender. But if he can defend over the top, that's impressive. Oh, I, I I don't hold out much hope. But he he, <laughs> he will try. But I yeah. I've watched the first twenty minutes, and it's I mean it's it's a movie about arm wrestling for a start. Yeah. <laughs> but I've gone back and watched the first twenty minutes, and and it's it's not great. <laughs> oh, you wait! Till you, you wait till you get to the finale. It's amazing. <laughs> and on that note, thank you very much, Dave, uh, and we'll speak again soon. Thank you. Bye now. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. Another great twentieth-century geek episode. Thank you for listening. If you would like to get in contact to suggest topics for future shows, or just chat about everything nerdy you can email me at 20thCenturyGeek at gmail.com. That's 20thCenturyGeek at gmail.com. Or find me on social media, Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. Just search for 20thCenturyGeek. If you would like to support the show, please go on your podcast catcher and leave a five-star review. I would greatly appreciate it. It raises the show in the ranks and lets more people know about the podcast. If you want to show more support for the podcast, we do have an Amazon wish list. Just go on Amazon and search for 20th Century Geek and you will find a list of books that will help with research for future podcasts. And don't forget, we love secondhand books in 20th Century Towers. Once again, thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.